Welcome to the episode eight of the G2 on 5G, the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week uh, is fellow analyst Angel Sag and Baby Yoda. How's Baby Yoda doing today? He's pretty good. Uh, he's chilling over there uh, behind me so that he's not disrupting the, the podcast while we're uh, <laughs> talking about 5G. Good. I think it kind of exists in a different G. <laughs> a different realm, the Mandalorian realm. So, well, let's get started. My first topic this week is uh, the T-Mobile outage. Um, I, I was resetting my phone. I've got two friends that have T-Mobile service, and I think you clued me into it. It's unfortunate. This happens from time to time. It affects all carriers. Um, but the FCC chairman, Pi, came out on Twitter and it's not the official FCC, uh, you know, uh, endorsement, but he came out and was, uh, you know, calling for an investigation, you know, and I think, I, I just think he's dead wrong. I mean, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to call the chairman, you know, ignorant, but, uh, but these sort of things happen all the time. And given COVID-19 and, you know, just the pressure on these cellular networks, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not T-Mobile's fault from my perspective. I mean, what do you think? Well, first of all, I think, T-Mobile did a really good job of owning up what the issue was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, lots of communication on Twitter from now. One hundred percent. I think it would have been better if there was no outage and it wasn't twelve hours. Um, I'm a T-Mobile customer, so obviously it affected me significantly. Um, I didn't fully lose connectivity; it kind of just lagged for me. But the problem was is that um, Ajit Pai, you know, decided to say there would be an investigation when that's never been the case before for any other outages that have happened before from other carriers and they happen from time to time. Um, and it's unfortunate nobody's happy about it, but it's happened to everybody else. So it seemed a little bit of a stretch and I think T-Mobile owned up to the issue very quickly and pointed out what, what, what the problem was. And, you know, I think moved along pretty quickly and communication and, and, you know, action and doing like the thing that needs to be fixed um, and, and fixing the problem that caused it, you know, ultimately, you know, I think most people are going to forget about it. Now, if this becomes a repeated issue, then mm-hmm. that might be something worth discussing, maybe worth something investigating. But if, if this is a one-off issue, I don't really see why it needs to be investigated to begin with. No, I agree. And I think, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing overcorrections. You know, I think people are on pins and needles given COVID-19. And obviously, what's going on right now with, um, you know, the news and, the, you know, and the media and social unrest and, I just think maybe this was just sort of a knee jerk, you know, but like, like you said, I mean, this affects all carriers. It happens from time to time. And to your point, I mean, if it continues, that's a concern, but you know, I think T-Mobile did a great job. They were very vocal on social media. Neville himself uh, was giving updates. It seemed like almost every other hour. Yeah. So we got to give them, give them a little bit of credit there and move on. So I I I don't think I've ever seen any other operator, not only, I mean, they've solved problems, but I don't think they've ever been so transparent about what caused the issue and how they're going to fix it. I don't think I recall AT&T Verizon ever doing that when they had an outage. So uh, it's, I mean, admittedly, they had a longer outage than usual, but yeah, Mm -hmm. just very weird situation. Yeah, definitely was. Well, let's move on. So you've got some news to share about Qualcomm. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of Qualcomm related. I mean, the reality is they did launch two new chipsets. Um, kind of in the last week or so, um, the, the, the two chipsets are the Snapdragon 690, 
which is a 5G chipset for kind of mid-tier phones. So you can get a 5G phone for under $500 mm-hmm. that still has, you know, 5G connectivity. Um, some people um, harped on the fact that it doesn't have millimeter wave support. But if you look at millimeter wave and the cost of millimeter wave, um, it's it's not a it doesn't fit the cost profile mm-hmm. of those lower end devices and the sure. markets where they're going don't have millimeter wave yet. So it yeah. doesn't really make much sense for a lot of reasons. Um, but to kind of counter that, um, they also launched their the Lenovo 5G PC with Verizon, which mm-hmm. is available today, right. um, which is the 18. <clears throat> um, but, um, you know, I think that well, actually, we're recording day ahead, but <laughs> the 18th is when it's available. So um, it has millimeter wave and sub six, so it does both. So that doesn't really um, fit into a lot of the um, narratives that millimeter wave is is an issue or it's dying because of mm-hmm. the 690 doesn't have it. Um, and on top of that, so and on top of having a phone and a PC 5G device, they also launched a 5G robotics platform called the RB5. Mm-hmm. which is designed for robots um, like in home, in factories, security, all kinds of robots, drones. And this platform, um, the RB5, utilizes kind of a modified version of the 865 chip mm-hmm. for robotics. So it's got mm-hmm. a lot of similar parts, but it's also got special parts for robotics. Yeah. Still very fast, lots of AI, but it also has the ability to connect to a 5G modem and get 5G connectivity, which is a big deal because there are robots out there that need connectivity. And mm-hmm. it's really cool and interesting that Qualcomm is doing 5G in smartphones, PCs, and robots. So yeah. I thought that was a very interesting kind of, um, you know, in the same week, they're kind of showing the breadth of what 5G can do. Right. And, you know, and this is part of their strategy. We've talked about this before. Um, I attended 5G Summit in Barcelona um, last year, and Qualcomm was very adamant about, you know, their roadmap supporting um, low-end devices, mid, mid, you know, kind of the mid part of the market, and high-end devices. And to your point, millimeter wave. I mean, that's going to be reserved for you know very, very high-end smartphones. So um, this fits within any product marketing strategy. You're going to want to have a bifurcation of features at different price points. So um, I agree with you. I think the great news is that they're they're serving all of the the different users. And, well, uh, the interesting thing is. The 690 has an X51 modem, mm-hmm. which is the third tier of 5G modems from Qualcomm. Because you've got the mm-hmm. 55, 52, and 51. So now they have three different tiers of 5G modems. So they're, oh, they're wow. clearly building out a very um, you know, broad spectrum of capabilities when it comes to 5G. Because yeah. um, the X51 has a peak download speed of 660 megabits per second. So it's nowhere near the top end on the X55. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Again, covering all those price points. So yep. well, let's shift to my second topic, and it's uh, it's around uh, the GSMA's cancellation of Mobile World Congress Americas in Los Angeles in October. And um, not surprising to hear this, you know, lots of uh, events are going virtual. Um, I really felt, I mean, I you know, that this was going to be really the coming out for the retooled CTIA uh, event. And mm-hmm. I was actually surprised that they weren't shifting this to a virtual event. You know, I think it, you know, had they done that, it could have really cemented its relevance. You know, as you remember, Mobile World Congress Barcelona, the flagship show, um, was caught in the lurch 
that's really when COVID was hitting. Um, yeah. It was like kinda, gangbusters, right? And it, I was actually went, in Barcelona. Yeah, it went time. down as COVID went up, but kind of. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I was actually flying back from Barcelona, had a few meetings, and then I, I got my, my butt back to the U.S. But, you know, I really, you know, I, th I think the GSMA really kind of missed the mark. I know that they, they've um, scheduled a virtual event to replace the uh, Mobile World Congress Shanghai event. That occurs mm -hmm. every year, but I was really surprised that they didn't um, step up and turn this into a virtual event. I, I think part of the reason why was because Ericsson made an announcement they weren't going to attend again, just mm -hmm. like with Mobile World Congress. And I think once they're out, you know, they're such a big entity um, and such an influential one, mm -hmm. and they take up so much space that if they're not willing to take the risk, I think a lot of other vendors are not interested in attending or taking the risk. So, or the or the economics um, don't work, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I just think that um, it's still too soon. Um, that said, um, you do have um, IFA saying that they're going to hold their event in Berlin in September. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to work out because you're going to have to quarantine people who are visiting from out of country. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just confusing to me um, unless you test everybody. But um, it's just odd. I, you know, I, I just don't feel like physical shows really make any sense this year at all. I don't think so either. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with CES. You know, we got some, I got some preliminary um, news that it'll be a smaller show. It'll be a lot of virtual tracks, which is not surprising, but I agree with you. I think for this year, you know, we need to put COVID in the rearview mirror and virtual events are working well. Like this week I attended a Cisco event. It was very, very well executed. So, so we'll see. Well, let's shift to your second topic and it's Nokia. And it's no surprise they've had some challenges on their roadmap from a silicon perspective. And so yep. you wanted to share some news around a, a new um, announcement. Yeah. So they have decided to tap Broadcom as a partner mm -hmm. for their 5G chipsets. Um, they're having Broadcom help them develop custom chipsets for 5G infrastructure. Um, and this is kind of a way for them to address some of their um, slipping on their own silicon ecos on their mm -hmm. own silicon roadmap um, mm -hmm. and kind of maybe speed up and possibly catch up to the competition um, do you have any input on that you know I you know I agree you know I attended their uh, their analyst forum at their home uh, their home base there last year and um, you know their CEO was very very transparent about that that they've had some misses on the roadmap reef shark is actually the chipset family that's uh, uh, that you know, it's Nokia's branding for that, and uh, and so I think this is positive. I mean, there have been some prior announcements with with other partners as well. I believe Marvell. Um, so I think you know Broadcom. I mean, obviously they've got great capabilities. Tend to focus on, you know, very high volume sort of you know merchant you know merchant silicon solutions. So I think this um, this should help really you know Nokia shore up its uh, its silicon you know misses in the roadmap. Good. Uh, yeah. That's what I have a feeling about too. Yeah, cool. Um, my third topic this week, um, very interesting. So uh, as the U.S. continues to push um, against China and Huawei in particular, there was news this week that, um, that the U.S. is actually offering incentives to Brazil, actually a family there, and uh, to um, incentivize them to not deploy Chinese infrastructure and focus on, you know, traditional infrastructure from from Nokia, from Ericsson, right. from Samsung and the likes. And 
I don't know. I mean, do you, do you think this is a too bold of a move, too extreme of a move on the U.S.'s part? So uh, I think um, it's, it's definitely an aggressive move. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really comes down to whether or not you think um, the U.S. government wants to, one, have political influence in that country, and two, um, you know, consider that country a close ally. Mm-hmm. Because I think that um, if you want to be able to share intel and, and communicate with a partner, you want to ensure that you trust their networks. And I have a feeling that this is kind of a way of bringing the U.S. closer to Brazil and mm-hmm. possibly pulling Brazil further away from the reach of China. Because mm-hmm. the reality is China is one of Brazil's largest trading partners, if not the largest. Yeah. And, um, you know, Huawei obviously has been a big part of that. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that this is kind of a way to politically um, draw Brazil further from China and more towards the U.S. Mm-hmm. Even though, to be fair, I think U.S. has kind of neglected Brazil for maybe the last decade. So um, <clears throat> I think that's kind of something to consider is this maybe once again, more of a political move than anything. Yeah, and I think it's trade-oriented as well, right? So as, you know, the U.S. pivots away from China, Brazil historically has been very protectionist, um, very high tariffs, um, very, you know, expensive to do business if you want to put manufacturing within the country as well. It's just been a political philosophy for many years. Again, I know it because I have family in Sao Paulo and and Rio and other cities, you know, throughout Brazil. So um, I think this might also be, you know, uh, an opportunity for them to build you know, trade relations. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk around, hey, you know, with the U.S. pivoting away from China, you know, what are some other countries? You know, India has been discussed. Mm-hmm. There are challenges in India with power grid, natural resources to support, you know, manufacturing and that sort of thing. You know, Brazil and its industrialized cities has, uh, you know, improved, um, you know, infrastructure to support that. So it's interesting, you know, it's just, it's just sort of my hypothesis there, but, um, you know, time will tell for sure. So, uh, well, let's shift to your third topic this week, and it's around Ericsson. We've been talking about Ericsson, and uh, they published a mobility report. And why don't you kind of give us an overview of what you, uh, you found insightful there? Sure. So um, they do this mobility report at least once a year. It might even be twice a year mm-hmm. um, or even three times a year. I, always, I lose track because there's so many of them. Um, But they're actually very insightful documents that are very rich in data um, and projections. Um, And and one of the big things that, you know, um, Ericsson has focused on with their mobility report is 5G, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, the most recent 5G um, report says that they expect um, about 190 million subs, 5G subs, Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of the year, um, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you consider that 5G is now kind of a global thing, mm-hmm. um, and it's in over 100 countries, I believe, at this point, mm-hmm. um, it's not a stretch to think that, okay, maybe China will end the year with maybe 50 million or 100 million. And then, you know, the U.S. could probably have 20 to 30 million. And that doesn't actually sound like an out- outrageous number anymore. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, almost 200 million users on 5G in what was supposed to be the first year is not bad. Um, you know, technically 5G launched 2019, mm-hmm. um, but there were basically no devices 
maybe one or two. It wasn't a real launch. Right. It was kind of like a pre-rollout. So mm. 2020 is really the first year of 5G, first full year of 5G. And um, yeah, it looks like it could be a really good year, even though, you know, they mentioned, you know, the first five pages of the report are all about COVID. And mm-hmm. basically all of their analyses were that while COVID, you know, is impacting, uh, you know, the, the, the ability of users to, you know, access the network or, you know, mm-hmm. travel and use it. The reality is people are also using the network more. So it's kind of a wash based on, you know, economic slowdown, you know, consumption up. So total and, and it's like things that haven't really changed much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, cellular data growth in general um, is kind of on pace to what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically 5G is kind of, you know, going the pace that it should be. And um, it's going to be quite big for the first year or two, just because they're, you know, go from zero to 190 million, you know, it's pretty significant, but the transition is going to be pretty big for operators and users. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've seen the report yet, but uh, do you have any uh, thoughts about it? Yeah, no, I, I, I took a look at it, you know, but you make an excellent point. So, you know, we basically had no 5G enabled devices in 2019. So actually from my perspective to see this number, and their prediction, you know, ending, you know, ending this year with nearly 200 million devices. To me, I, I feel like, you know, we're ahead, you know, <laughs> of, um, of, of what we thought, where we thought we would be. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, it, you know, I think it bodes well just for uh, the deployment in general moving forward. So, hey, so with that, another great, another great session, Angel, this week with you and Baby Yoda. Why don't you uh, take it away? Sure. Um, We hope that our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If you have any um, ideas um, or would like to have us cover something um, in a future podcast, uh, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Willtown Tech and I'm at Anshul Sog on Twitter. Um, And we hope that you guys have a great weekend and please tune again in next week.